If you would please take your Bibles and open to Daniel chapter 4. The book of Daniel chapter 4. I want to publicly thank Dave Zess for speaking to us last week and for the things he had to say. We're very grateful. We've been studying the book of Daniel, which was written by Daniel. It was not written uh, to those who are suffering deadly persecution, but rather it is written to those who are living a really comfortable lifestyle and a comfortable social situation, but they are in a pagan culture. The Jews have been taken into exile to Babylonia, to Babylon, and it is within that context. They are not persecuted. Um, they have good lives, but they are a very small minority. And the question is, how are they supposed to live in such a world? There seem to be two options for God's people throughout history. Either to withdraw from society and just have sort of a, a Christian community, or to sort of disperse within society and sort of give in to it and compromise. Um, I've mentioned this throughout the series, but Dick Kai's book, Chameleon Christianity, uh, writes about this temptation. Um, the one is to tribalize, and the other is to accommodate or to compromise. And both are violation of what Jesus teaches us in the Sermon on the Mount. We are supposed to be salt, we are supposed to be light. And light is not to be hidden, so tribalizing is not an answer. You don't put your candle on a bush, under a bushel. But neither are you to compromise. Salt is not to lose its saltiness. We are to have an impact on the society around us. We are not to isolate ourselves. We are not to compromise. There must be a third option. And this is what we find in the book of Daniel. The more that we study Daniel, the more I'm convinced that this is what God is trying to convey to his people. Not to isolate, not to compromise, but to faithfully be obedient recognizing that God is in control. How do you fit in without being swallowed up? This is the question. If there is a key to this book thus far, it is in chapter 2, verse 21. He changes times and seasons. He sets up kings and deposes them. We tend not to recognize this. We tend to forget that God, in fact, is in control. Um, part of this is because we don't see it perhaps in the day-to-day -day things, but also because we are surrounded by people who are striving for power, who lust for power, who are doing anything they can to get power, including sort of running over, bulldozing people uh, on their way to the top. Individuals, groups, all seek to have power. And I think this is what Nebuchadnezzar represents in this book thus far, that Nebuchadnezzar is the most powerful man in the world. At that point in human history, there is no one more powerful than him. And yet he's insecure. He's having these troubling dreams. He's paranoid. And I think that is because there's always this, this striving for power and never being satisfied. Three times thus far in this book, God has shown to Nebuchadnezzar that he is in control. In chapter 1, when Daniel and his friends do not follow the king's diet, but they in fact end up being better than the other participants, this is sort of the first hint, it's not directly stated, 
that God's ways are better than man's ways. Then in chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar is troubled. He has a dream and he can't remember it. Um, But as Daniel reveals the dream to him and the interpretation, the bottom line is, Nebuchadnezzar, what you have is temporary. There is something that is coming that is permanent, and that is the kingdom of God. And then in chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar set up an image. This is sort of a way to unite the people. When you hear the music playing, you need to bow down to this image. And there were at least three men, Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego, who refused. This is seen as a challenge to his rule. He has them thrown into the fiery furnace. They are not burned. And when they come out, Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble for no other god can save in this way. So three times God has revealed to Nebuchadnezzar that he is in charge. And one could make the point, and some have, that up to this point, God has dealt gently with Nebuchadnezzar. And at certain points, it seems that Nebuchadnezzar got the message. What I just read to you from chapter 3, he makes this decree, don't say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Um, The message is what we will see three times here in chapter 4, is that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men. And yet something's not quite right. And so in chapter 4, God moves from the gentle method, if you wish, to a harsh method. And God deals rather harshly with Nebuchadnezzar to get the point across. It's been suggested that two parables illustrate God's working with people, and in the case of Nebuchadnezzar. The first is a New Testament parable, the parable of the sower. Um, he told them many things in parables saying a farmer went out to sow his seed as he was scattering the seed some fell along the path and the birds came and ate it up some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil it sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow but when the sun came up the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root others seed fell among thorns which grew up and choked the plants Still other seed fell on good ground where it produced a crop, a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. He who has ears, let him hear. The truth of God has been sown in Nebuchadnezzar's life, at at least on three different occasions. He has seen the truth. And yet, perhaps in the parable of the sower, the seed is sown, but it's choked by the cares of this world, or the sun comes and scorches it. Somehow, it doesn't remain. Nebuchadnezzar gets it and then he loses it, so to speak, that he doesn't remember the message that was given to him. I think what we will see here in chapter 4 is that Nebuchadnezzar ultimately will say no to the message of God. For a while he gets it, but then in the end it's like no. Uh, He will go his own way. He will say, I am the king of kings. I am the sovereign over the kingdoms of men. And so God takes another approach here in chapter 4. And this is an Old Testament parable found in Jeremiah, 
Jeremiah 18, Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah uh, from the Lord, Go down to the potter's house, and there I will give you my message. So I went down to the potter's house, and I saw him working at the wheel. But the pot he was shaping from the clay was marred in his hand. In his hands. So the potter formed it into another pot, shaping it as it seemed best to him. Then the word of the Lord came to me, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter does, declares the Lord. Like clay in the hand of the potter, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. If you've ever seen potters working with a wheel, they throw it down there and then the wheel goes around and they begin to shape it. But if it doesn't turn out the way they want, they, you know, Scrunch it all up and start all over again. This, I think, is a much more radical approach. And I think this is what we see in Daniel chapter 4. The seed was sown and it seemed for a while to grow up a little, but then Nebuchadnezzar turns his back against God. So now in chapter 4, no more seed. Now we're dealing with clay. And God is going to reshape Nebuchadnezzar. Just a note on this structure. We saw this when we were looking at Leviticus. It's a chiasm. Uh, it will be A, B, C, B, A. So if you look at the first three or four verses of chapter four and the last three or four verses of the same chapter, they seem very similar. That's A and A. Well, the B is the dream. And then the interpretation is given. That's C. And then B is the dream comes to pass. It is fulfilled. Um, Let's begin here in chapter uh, 4, verses 1 through 3. King Nebuchadnezzar, to the peoples, nations, and men of every language who live in all the world, may you prosper greatly. It is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. On the face of it, this is an amazing pronouncement. If I were next Sunday to say, as I do every Sunday, we've come together to worship God, and then said, how great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an ever eternal kingdom. Um, I'd say, that's, Damon, that's, that's a strong way to begin our worship together. What Nebuchadnezzar says is true, but there's something wrong. What's wrong with Nebuchadnezzar saying this? Well, let's keep reading and see. Now we have the dream, verses 4 through 17. And bear with me, follow along as I read. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. I had a dream that made me afraid. As I was lying on my bed, the images and visions that passed through my mind terrified me. So I commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be brought before me to interpret the dream for me. When the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners came, I told them the dream, but they could not interpret it for me. Finally, Daniel came into my presence, and I told him the dream. And then there's a parenthesis here. He is called Belteshazzar after the name of my God, and the spirit of the holy gods is in him. I said, Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and no mystery is too difficult for you. Here is my dream interpreted for me. These are the visions I saw while lying in my bed. I looked and there before me stood a tree in the middle of the land. Its height was enormous. The tree grew large and strong and its top touched the sky. It was visible to the ends of the earth. 
Its leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant, and on it was food for all. Under it the beast of the field found shelter, and the birds of the air lived in its branches. From it every creature was fed. In the visions I saw while lying on my bed, I looked, and there before me was a messenger, a holy one, coming down from heaven. He called in a loud voice, Cut down the tree and trim off its branches. Strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the animals flee from under it and the birds from its branches. But let the stump and its roots, bound with iron and bronze, remain in the ground, in the grass of the field. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him live with the animals among the plants of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man and let him be given the mind of an animal till seven times pass by him, pass by for him. The decision is announced by messengers. The holy ones declare the verdict so that the living one, or the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets them over the lowliest of men. Verse 4 begins, or marks this as somewhat different in that Nebuchadnezzar is contented. He's not paranoid. Um, he's not grasping. He seems finally to be at peace. He's at the top of, the, of humanity. He is the most powerful man. He's prosperous. He is content. But then this peace of mind, this contentment, is troubled. It is disturbed by a dream. It terrified him. It goes from deter, uh, disturbed to afraid to terrified. This time he remembers the dream. And so he tells all of his wise guys, all the wise men, you know, tell me what this means. And I, I find this really striking. You know, in the first case, in chapter 2, he didn't remember the dream. And he said, tell me what my dream was and then tell me what it meant. Well, that's really hard. But here he tells them what the dream means. Boy, I think you could make up something, you know. For them to say, no, we have no idea what this means, I think is really right, quite remarkable. In verse number 8, Daniel comes into his presence and he tells him the dream. Um, you may remember in chapter 1, we are told that Daniel and his friends are given new names. We are not told the origin of the names. I did tell you that, but the, we're not told in chapter 1. But here the case, is, or the king makes it very clear Daniel has been given the name of his god, Belteshazzar, a pagan god. Nebuchadnezzar believes that the spirit of the deities is in him. That's why Daniel is able to interpret dreams. Um, I, I just think it's worth noting that Nebuchadnezzar sort of wants everyone to know, oh, by the way, call this guy Belteshazzar. He's named after my favorite god. Um, Here's a dream. There's a tree, and it is not a normal tree because it reaches up to the sky. You can see it from the ends of the earth. It is, in ancient mythology, a cosmic tree. All of life uh, derives sustenance from this tree. This tree is what keeps everyone alive. Every creature is fed by it. But then a messenger, an angel, comes down from heaven, and he has a message. And the message is, cut it down. Cut off its branches, strip off its leaves, and scatter its fruits. And then the stump is to be bound with iron and with bronze. And then, beginning in verse number 15, it begins to shift 
now it seems that he's not talking about a tree, but a person. Let him be drenched. Um, and so at this point, I think Nebuchadnezzar should have had a clue that, in fact, this might have something to do with him. What can the dream mean? The king wants to know. Verses 18 and 19. This is the dream that I, King Nebuchadnezzar, had. Now, Belteshazzar, tell me what it means, for none of the wise men in my kingdom can interpret it for me, but you can, because the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Then Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, was greatly perplexed for a time, and his thoughts terrified him. Before Daniel gives the interpretation, we are told that he is greatly perplexed and his thoughts terrified him. Why? This, this may in fact surprise us because we simply expect Daniel to know what the dream means and sort of, you know, you put in the information and he will give you the interpretation. Um, but I'd have you consider something we said at the beginning of our study of Daniel. Daniel's 12 chapters. The first six chapters, these are the stories that kids learn in Sunday school. These are the stories. But the second six chapters are visions and dreams that up to this point, theologians oftentimes still are scratching their heads about. It's like, we're not quite sure what these things mean. And I've tried to make the case that we cannot understand the second six chapters if we don't understand the first six chapters. And so here we will see that Daniel is perplexed, that this, this business of visions is not a simple matter. It is very taxing, and he is troubled by it. So when we get to chapter 7, in which he has a vision, at the end of the chapter, this is the end of the matter. I, Daniel, was deeply troubled by my thoughts, and my face turned pale, but I kept the matter to myself. And then in chapter 8, the end, I, Daniel, was exhausted and lay ill for several days. Then I got up and went about the king's business. I was appalled by the vision. It was beyond understanding. I think because of the time in which we live, we have a very casual attitude about God. We have a very... Uh, casual is the word that comes to mind, but very informal uh, view of God. Um, C.S. Lewis, and this is decades ago... Uh, said that you know God is not our celestial chum. He's not our buddy. He is the Lord God Almighty. And when God speaks, look at scripture. Whenever God speaks, people fall on the ground as though dead. This is not a small thing. And I think maybe up to this point we've had a, a very relaxed view that God just tells uh, Daniel what it means and so Daniel just sort of happily goes along his way. Remember years ago seeing a televangelist who was walking back and forth, and and then at a certain point he said, "Okay, Lord, I'll tell him. Don't worry." I'm like, "Really? <laughs> That's how you deal with God? God tells Daniel what it means, and Daniel is troubled. He is perplexed. This is not a small thing. I think there's something else. The interpretation of the dream affects Nebuchadnezzar." Someone that Daniel knows, somebody he works for. And the interpretation of the dream is not nice. It's, it's not going to be good. Daniel's not proud that he knows the interpretation. Look at me, I can interpret dreams. He is deeply troubled because this affects somebody that he knows. 
again, I find it strange oftentimes that people make predictions about calamities or other people's lives and it doesn't seem to bother them at all. It bothers Daniel. He is deeply troubled by this. But he gives the interpretation anyway. Verse number 20. The tree you saw which grew large and strong with its top touching the sky, visible to the whole earth with beautiful leaves and abundant fruit, providing food for all, giving shelter to the beasts of the field and having nesting places in its branches for the birds of the air. You, O king, are that tree. You have become great and strong. Your greatness has grown until it reaches the sky and your dominion extends to distant parts of the earth. You, O king, saw a messenger, a holy one, coming down from heaven, saying, Cut down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump bound with iron and bronze, and the grass of the field while its roots remain in the ground. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him live like the wild animals until seven times pass by for him. This is the interpretation, O king, and this is the decree the Most High has issued against my Lord the king. You will be driven away from the people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like cattle and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. The command to leave the stump in the ground with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that that heaven rules. Here's the interpretation. The cosmic tree is Nebuchadnezzar. And he will be reduced to being like an animal. He will be restored when he acknowledges that heaven rules. But verse number 27 is fascinating. This doesn't have to happen. This dream doesn't have to come to pass. Look at verse 27. Therefore, O king, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be that then your prosperity will continue. It's simply put, repent. Nebuchadnezzar, you need to repent. And, all things being equal, if Nebuchadnezzar had repented, then this would not have happened to him. Does he repent? Well, let's keep reading. This is the second B. This is the dream fulfilled. Verse 28. All this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. Twelve months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, Is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence, by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? Let's be clear at this point. Nebuchadnezzar has said no. The seed has been sown. And a final time in this dream, he's given a chance to repent. It's been sown. And he says no. He's not going to change his actions. He's not going to repent. He's rather pleased with himself. And the rea- the, what happens, the result is the dream becomes a reality. Verse 31. The words were still on his lips when a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like cattle. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. Immediately what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from the people and ate grass like cattle. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven. 
until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. A question that comes up here is, how long was Nebuchadnezzar in the state? You'll notice it says seven times. It doesn't say seven years. It doesn't say seven months. Um, and I think, I think it's left ambiguous or vague for us for a very specific reason. I said the key verse of Daniel is Daniel 2.21. He changes times and seasons. So it's not years or months. That's unimportant. What is important is that God is in control. God is in charge of time. He changes times and seasons. It may have meant seven years. It might have been seven months. You'll notice that in verse number 29, it says 12 months later. It doesn't say one year later. And so we're sort of in the month mode, if you wish. That I think it's months. But on some level, it doesn't matter. The point is that we should understand that God was in charge of what happened to Nebuchadnezzar as he is in charge of all things. So verse number 34. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. That's what we heard earlier in the chapter, isn't it? He comes to his senses. His sanity is restored. And he praises the Most High. He is the God of all creation. And here we have what matches the A at the beginning of the chapter. The the verse divisions may throw us off. Because I think the second half of verse number 34 goes with what we're going to look at. So his dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? This is the lesson that Nebuchadnezzar was to learn. We might say, but but didn't he already know this? I mean, chapters 1, 2, and 3, I mean, didn't he learn this already? Um, What he said, you know, the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him, trusted in him and defied the king's command. They were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Yes, I think Nebuchadnezzar got that, but I think there's something he was missing. And I think that God's people throughout time have tended to miss this as well. Yes, God does as he pleases in the big things the transcendent things. But he also does so in the everyday matters, in the eminent matters. So, Nebuchadnezzar is willing to say that he is the God of all creation, but then he said, is this not the great Babylon that I have built? I take care of the day-to-day things. God does the big things. I will take care of the small things. He failed to acknowledge God's presence in his day-to-day life. His was basically a life without God. He's there, but he's way out there. God's way out there. Um, 
But in the day-to-day things, you know, I, I will take care of it. Nebuchadnezzar learns that this is not the case. So his sanity is restored. And he says at the end, all those and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. God deals with people, with individuals. He deals with nations. He deals with everything. And Nebuchadnezzar needed to learn this. As I said, this book was not written for people who are undergoing persecution, but for those who have comfortable lives in an alien culture. They're living in a pagan culture. And so the message is not, how am I supposed to survive tribulation, uh, but how am I supposed to live as one of God's children when I'm surrounded by a pagan culture? The stories that we've seen thus far in Daniel, I think we would say, yes, this pagan king needed to learn who God was. He needed to be taught the truth about reality, that the God of Israel is the God of all creation. But this is also something that God's people need to learn because we so easily forget. When we are in a pagan culture, when we, are in, when we are in a small minority, we might tend to forget that God is in fact sovereign over the kingdoms of men. God is somehow relegated to heavenly matters, spiritual matters, but the day-to-day things we forget about. And the thought that comes to mind, and I think I've avoided this for many years now, is politics. Politics here in the United States. During the previous administration, some thought that the Antichrist was in the White House. During the current administration, many are convinced that the Antichrist lives in the White House. As the people of God, as our citizens around us, we go back and forth about political matters. But has anybody thought during the previous administration and in the current administration, the Lord reigns? God is in charge. Psalm 97, the Lord reigns, let the earth be glad. Psalm 93, I, uh, the Lord reigns, he is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed in majesty and is armed with strength. The world is firmly established, it cannot be moved. Psalm 99, the Lord reigns, let the nations tremble. He sits enthroned between the cherubim, let the earth shake. I think we have forgotten what Nebuchadnezzar is being taught and we need to relearn, and that is that God is in charge. Everyone wants to talk about the Antichrist, and not in the rapture type thing, but just, you know, whoever's in charge is demonic or whatever. And we forget that Christ reigns. The Lord reigns. I find it, it's kind of counterintuitive to me that our brothers and sisters who live in countries where they're experiencing persecution seem to know better than we do that the Lord reigns. I think if we could go to the various countries where we have uh, people that we support who are preaching the gospel there, and if we could talk to the people there, and we would say, uh, does the Lord reign? I'd say, absolutely. And we're like, wow, how it's amazing that you can say that. You're facing persecution. It would seem that God has abandoned you. But then if you were to ask the average Christian in this country, does the Lord reign? Yeah, I don't think people are too convinced of that. And our lives are comfortable. We're not being persecuted. We don't have that much trouble. 
This is what the book of Daniel is about. When we are God's people living in a pagan culture, we can very, very easily forget that God reigns. Instead, we get involved, like with Nebuchadnezzar, power games, power politics, you know, talking all these various ideologies. And it's very interesting that Nebuchadnezzar, when he raised his eyes up, then he, he acknowledged, you know, there's something bigger than me. The Lord reigns. Nebuchadnezzar learned the lesson. I think Daniel wants us to learn the lesson. God wants us to learn the lesson. We are his people. We are now in a post-Christian world. We are becoming a shrinking minority. That's okay. That's okay. Because the Lord reigns. And instead of getting ourselves all tangled and twisted up in the various controversies, political issues, let's remember who's in charge. And with Nebuchadnezzar, let's worship him and say his is an eternal dominion from generation to generation. Let's pray together. Our Father, it seems that we are so easily distracted. And we are quite forgetful. And so as we deal with various issues and day-to-day matters, a tax day is coming up, people complain about taxes, the IRS, and we talk about various bills that are put into Congress, who should we vote for so that we can get the best deal possible, and somehow we become distracted by all of these things, and we have forgotten that you reign. This is your world. I thank you for our brothers and sisters who do not have comfortable lives, who face persecution, and yet they seem to understand this so well. Their faith in you, I think, is stronger than ours. Their trust in you, their belief that, in fact, you do rule, even though their circumstances scream, that's simply not the case. And we who live comfortable lives We are grateful for the peace that you have brought to this nation. We have forgotten. We've become distracted. I thank you for the book of Daniel, for the stories that we read of Nebuchadnezzar. How, in fact, we see ourselves in him. We may not be the most powerful person in the world, but in our minds, we are the center of the universe, oftentimes. And we forget that you are to be the center of all things. We do here at the end of our worship remember our brothers and sisters around the world, particularly those that suffer persecution would strengthen them, watch over them. May they be an example to us. May we learn from them. Thank you for bringing us together today to worship you. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.